We're going to dive right into our study, so please grab your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 3, verse 11, and then grab those message notes. If you're brand new with us today, I want to say a special welcome. Uh, Just to kind of catch you up a little bit, we've been studying the New Testament book of Acts uh, these uh, last uh, couple of weeks now, eight weeks now, Uh, and this book tells the story of the early Christians and what the early Christians did right after Jesus ascended into heaven. the, the, The scriptures tell us that as the Lord goes, like right before he gathers his disciples together and he charges them, he commands them to take the message of Christ to the ends of the earth. I mean, this is a big mission, right? And so Acts tells us how this began, tracing the roughly the first 30 years of this the, of the church's existence. And last Sunday, our passage, uh, we looked at this remarkable healing that took place in Acts chapter 3. We met this adult man who had been unable to walk since birth. So he never walked. His ankles, his feet couldn't support him. And he was well known in the city of Jerusalem because he, he tended to sit every day at a highly trapped area, the gate, this massive gate to the entrance to the temple. And every day he asked for coins, for alms. That's how, he, that's how he survived. And then Peter and John, the apostles, come to pray one day, and they meet him, and they start talking to him. And after a brief conversation, he gets healed in the name of Jesus. And let's read what happens next, verse 11. And when he clung to Peter and John, this, the, he is the guy who was healed, all the people utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. By the way, real quick, this is a very, this is a meaty, this is a meaty passage of scripture, okay? So if, if you're like, I don't even know what Peter's saying here, uh, in a minute, don't worry, we're gonna work through it together, but we're gonna go to work today. So bring your lunch pail, uh, put your overalls on, we're gonna work. Okay, here we go. Uh, Peter saw this. He addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when Pilate had decided to release Jesus. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, whose name? Jesus' name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all. Verse 17, and now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago." Moses said, and he's going to quote Moses, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And then Peter ends the quotation. 
And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him, that is Jesus, to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Okay, let's stop there. This is a lot, all right? I tried to warn you. Okay, but you came anyway, and it's too late to leave. So, all right, so what, let's work through this together. This is talking about the setting as this guy's healing at the beautiful gate. That was the gate that was called beautiful. And this generated a big stir in the temple that day. You, you may recall from last weekend that the guy who was healed, he, uh, he went from like zero to fifth gear in like 1.2 seconds, right? He had never walked. He didn't go to physical therapy in the healing. He didn't like get, you know, start with a cane. And then, you know, like he just like jumps up and starts running around the temple and he's leaping and he's praising God. And this is drawing a ton of attention to the healing situation. And so everybody's like whips around and they're like, they know this guy and they, they're shocked that he's running around. And so we don't know how, but it says Peter and John and the healed guy make their way out of the interior of the temple. And then they go to this place called the court of the Gentile, specifically Solomon's porch. And a huge crowd follows them. In fact, Luke says, Dr. Luke, who wrote this book, says that people were running to get to where Peter, John and the healed guy were. And, and it's Solomon's porch. Turn to your neighbor and say, the porch. Let's talk about the porch. The porch was a huge covered walkway that spanned the rim of the temple complex. Here's a, here's a, it's not a picture. It looks like a picture. It's just a recreation of the temple complex. And so Solomon's portico or porch is that double columned, um, uh, see that walkway sort of at the back there? Uh, and it goes all the way around. So this is a big area. And by the way, you can see the temple proper. That big building in the middle is the actual temple where the Holy of Holies is, where the Ark of the Covenant is. And then just outside of that, you see the massive Nicanor Gate or the beautiful gate. It looks pretty small in this picture. It kind of gives you an idea of the scale. Uh, so... Uh, Solomon's porch was a popular hangout for people. This was where you kind of wanted to be. First of all, non-Jews, Gentiles were allowed out in this area, so there was no restrictions. It was also shady. Uh, it was, it, there's, uh, this is on a mountain, so there's a breeze a lot, of, a lot of times flowing through there. So when it's hot, it's kind of a nice place to be. When it did rain, you have coverage from the inclement weather. Here's an artist's rendering of what it may have looked like, kind of the POV. You can see a lot of people are around. It's just a nice place to be. Solomon's porch. This is mentioned in scripture several times. Uh, for example, it's in John chapter 10, another gospel. We see Jesus is walking through the Solomon's porch there. And some, some Pharisees, some Jewish people that didn't like Jesus try to, try to entrap him. And so they, they did this a lot, right? Because they were threatened by the Lord. And so they would wanted to get Jesus to say something, uh, that would, uh, that would, um, cause it so then they could like arrest him right i can't think of the right words right now uh of what that means uh implicate there it is <laughs> yay billy you can know english um i gotta cheer myself on sometimes so in john 10 though they couldn't 
entrap the Lord. And so they got frustrated and it says they tried to stone Jesus, but it says that the Lord escapes. And we don't know what, how this was. Like, I think he kind of Jedi mind tricked these fools and was like, ah, these aren't the droids you're looking for. And he just ran out of there. This wasn't his time yet. But uh, nonetheless, he, he just, he gets out of there. Another example in the book of uh, Acts, a little bit later, Luke tells us that the Jerusalem church actually meets right here. And so this is like their gathering place. They didn't have church buildings, not for a couple hundred years in Christianity. So they had to find somewhere to meet. They just chose to meet here and gather by the thousands to hear preaching, the apostles preaching, to sing songs and hymns and to receive communion. So I want you to just think about this. Like, let's just go, go here for a second. It's like church time. There's thousands of people worshiping right here and you can see the temple and you see that. And just over that little wall is where the priests are still sacrificing animals to pay the penalty for the sins of Israel. And theoretically, on church days, the priests were working and like bleeding out a heifer at the same time, hearing the Christians sing about the blood of Jesus. Ooh, what a cool place to be. Wouldn't this have been an exciting place to be at the porch? So back to Acts 3. Peter and John are in the porch, and they notice, again, this large crowd. It's hard to not notice. And everybody's running, and they, and they recognize another opportunity to communicate the gospel. And so once again, it is Peter who steps up and delivers his second sermon, at least the second sermon we have recorded for us. And once, once more, Peter presents a very Jewishy message. This is like a really Jewishy sermon. And, and, and keep in mind who his audience is. His audience is primarily Jewish people. And these are Jewish people who are really committed to their faith. They're, they're attending the daily call to prayer. They're in the temple. They're praying. They're locked in. They're serious about their faith. So they know their Bibles, their Old Testaments. And this is why... Peter is trying to connect to them. He's trying to reach his audience. And, uh, and this is, uh, in a sense, why his message may seem so foreign to us. Most of us, who's a Gentile in here? Raise your hand. Some of you don't know what a Gentile is. It's, it's a non-Jewish person. Most of us are Gentiles. And, uh, and then we're also 2,000 years removed. So some of this kind of flies right by. All right. What he's doing, though, is he's striving to assist this audience in comprehending the healing they just saw, as well as answer some key questions about what's going on, about Jesus and the resurrection. And this is, this is, this is like the topic of conversation in Jerusalem right now. Okay, so that's what this sermon is. So Pete steps up to the plate on the porch, and the first thing he says, and I love this, is don't look at us, it was Jesus. Don't look at us, guys. It's, literally, it's like, stop staring at us. It's making me uncomfortable, right? This guy was healed by Jesus, Peter says, not by me or John, not by our goodness and our godliness and our holiness and our piety. This was the work of Jesus Christ. So Peter's not interested in taking credit. John's not interested in taking credit. They're pointing everyone to the Lord. And just before we go any further, I just want to, can I just preach this point for just a second here? Because there's a valuable bounce off that we can apply. And the application is this, credit God for the good things that flow from your life. 
Okay, this is what Peter and John are modeling for us. So whatever blessing I bring to the table, you bring to the table, we got that from God, all right? So let's give God the credit. Another way to say this is we should stop taking credit for what God is doing. Uh, and, you know, that's maybe in the negative. So in other words, the more positive, credit God instead. So whatever talent I bring or my mind or my gifts or my, my expertise or whatever value I may add to the equation, remember that that is from God and give him the credit. Deflect the attention. If you receive a compliment, this is the Lord's work in your life. He's doing this through your life. The Bible talks about this in other places. In James, it's just another book in the New Testament. It says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. This is James 1, uh, 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So, guys, this is how we work. This is what Christians do. When you do something cool and someone notices it, like, it's just like a bounce it off, bounce it back to the Lord. Oh, this is God. Oh, God's so good. And maybe it's not appropriate, like if you're at work uh, and this is not, you know, maybe you're like not supposed to talk about it and you get fired or whatever. Figure out a way to deflect that back to a team member or just the, you know, the goodness of the group or whatever it is. And so this is how we operate. This is what Peter and John are doing. Is that, is everybody good with that? We good? We got, you got that? Okay. Let's keep going. So then what Peter does next is he spends most of the rest of his time unpacking the question, who is Jesus for his fellow Jews? Who is Jesus? And he does so by drawing on very, uh, on four very popular Old Testament concepts of Messiah. So we're going to talk about this for a sec. The first concept, very popular in the Jewish scriptures, is he calls Jesus the servant. You notice this and look at verse 13 again on your, in, in Acts 3. He says, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, and then Peter mentions the servant again in, in verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent Jesus to you first. So Jesus is God's servant. So if you have a Bible that can highlight like an electronic version, highlight that, double tap that word. This is a trigger word for first century Jewish people. This was like a snap to attention word. He's making Peter direct reference to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, specifically four passages that were called the, the, the servant songs of Isaiah. This is Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and then the fourth one is found in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. The chapter break is probably in the wrong spot. But these are the four servant songs of Isaiah and in these passages, they describe Israel's Messiah. The anointed one, of, who's the Messiah? The anointed one of God sent to deliver God's people from oppression and sin. But here, in the four servant songs of Isaiah, the Messiah is described as a humble servant leader who is meek and kind and gentle and lowly. And this tweaked Jewish people, particularly their theologians, because the Messiah, 
think about it. The Messiah is someone who is going to deliver the nation of Israel from oppression, which meant political prowess and military like gifts and skills. And so the Messiah had to be in the natural thinking, kind of a baller leader, like a big man in a room, someone that could command a presence, someone that could, could, could think militarily, someone that could think economically, someone who could think politically and really lead the nation into prominence once again. Actually, the, 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 the goal was, or the wish for Jews in the first century was that they would recapture the golden age of Israel that was set by David and Solomon and even take it further. And David and Solomon were both politically astute and militarily astute. And so the Messiah then needed to be someone that was like a big dog leader, right? And yet Isaiah comes along and really chops that under, uh, just like, and, and, and it's because the, no, 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 the Messiah's meek and lowly and humble. And then in the fourth servant song, he's the suffering servant. And in that one's a, just like a real mind bender because the Messiah will suffer and be bruised and be deformed, but eventually will triumph. So the Messiah would then need to fulfill the servant songs, which were puzzling to Jews. And Peter is kind of, he's like, he's like, now connecting the dots. He's saying, guys, Jesus is the suffering servant that Isaiah spoke of, that Isaiah prophesied about. And everyone in the audience would have been like, oh, okay. They would have gotten that reference. And many would have recalled as well, Jesus' horrible death that just happened on the cross. This was big news. Everybody knew about this. And so these dots would have been connected. Now, again, you and I, we didn't get that at all, did we? Unless you're like a super uber-duper Bible nerd and you've studied this stuff before. But naturally, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, we wouldn't connect. But back then, in this context, Peter's like being really great. He gets his audience and he's connecting these dots. Now, okay, there's a couple more. Peter says also... Who is Jesus? Jesus is the holy and righteous one. This is in verse 14. But you denied, Peter says, the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer. You asked for Barabbas to be granted to you when Pilate had Jesus on um, kangaroo court time. So holy and righteous, these are terms in the Old Testament repeatedly used to characterize God and who he is. God's character is holy and God acts righteously. So God's holy, he's set apart, he's above us. And then God behaves righteously or justly because of his perfect intrinsic character quality of holiness, he's perfectly righteous. Many texts to prove this or to to tease this out, I just put a couple in your notes there, Leviticus 11.44, Deuteronomy 32.4. These discuss the aspects of holiness and righteousness of God's person, And so Peter comes forward and he says, Jesus is the holy and righteous one, (laughs) which is the equivalent of saying Jesus is God. And this was kind of a a bomb that was dropped in the room, right, Uh, theologically. And then Peter kind of presses it. He says, but instead of recognizing the holy and righteous one, you guys asked for Barabbas and, and you killed him. And this leads to the third, the third uh, answer to the question, who is Jesus? Peter says he's the author of life. You killed the author of life in verse 15, which is a very paradoxical statement. 
You have the originator, the author of life, and you guys killed him. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's actually a very stark, this is like kind of an in-your-face comment. This is Peter pulling no punches in this sermon. Like he's not, he's being respectful, he's being, he's being loving, but he's bringing truth in a way that I'm sure was quite uncomfortable for the audience. Now, this Greek word, archegos, is a fascinating word. Archegos means, uh, it's translated here by author. Uh, archegos, this is a word uh, that, like, do you know the word arch, arch rival or uh, arch enemy? That word, that means, that's arche in the Greek. Our English is arch. It's arche, which means like boss or it means chief or master, architect. The R word architect means master builder in Greek. RK, architectone. Um, this is not in my notes. I'm starting to snurt out here. I actually get in these little glitches in my brain. I can't get out of it. I'm going to start giving you all the RK words, right? Okay, stop, stop, stop. Come back to this. And so Peter's saying that he's the, he's the boss of life. He's the chief of life. He's the author of life. That's how the, the translators translate it. And you murdered him. You guys, your rulers did. You pushed him forward to be murdered. And then he says, God undoes that. God undoes your sin because he raised him from the dead. And we were witnesses of that, Peter says. We saw him. And I, I just want to say this. So this was like the worst sin you could do was to kill the author of life. And yet God undoes that sin and makes it right. And there's another little lesson for us. If any of us ever gets in our heads, my sin or my wrongs, have, there, there's, I've completely screwed this up. There's no coming back from this. There's no way that this can be made right again. I want you to, if that's ever a thing in your head, I want you to remember this little passage because the worst of all, God fixed. And so therefore, if yours is less than the worst, which it is, then God can fix that too. And this is a hopeful thought. This is what we have in the gospel, is that, man, my goof up, my mess up, it's a, it's a huge issue. And yet the Lord can undo that. He can fix that. And that's good news. All right. Finally, Peter says, Jesus is, who is Jesus? He's um, he's the author of life. Uh, who else is he? He is the uh, holy and righteous one. He's the servant. And then finally, he says he's the prophet, the prophet. Verse 22, this is pretty huge. Peter goes into a lengthy quote from a famous, a really famous passage for Jews, Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18 is Moses. Moses says that God will raise up a prophet like me and Israel, you need to listen to him. And because of this passage, Israel, when it was looking for its Messiah, was also looking for Messiah prophet. The Messiah had to be a prophet. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of the Lord. In, in John chapter 1, which is another New Testament book, we see Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. He's calling his first disciples, and he bumps into a dude named Philip. 
And Philip um, is interacting with Jesus, and, and Jesus kind of tells him this like one little thing, and it blows his mind. It was like a little mini miracle, and his mind is blown. And so Philip, it says, runs to his buddy Nathaniel and says, we found him. We found the prophet. We found the prophet that Moses told us about. His name is Jesus, and he comes from Nazareth. And then Nate goes, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Bakersfield? Can anything good come from California? Can anything good come from, I don't know, where you, what, what town do you not like? <laughs> Portland? Can anything good? I'm just, for the video, I'm just sharing what other people are telling me. <laughs> this is fun. I could do this for five more minutes. Uh, <laughs> right? And so, but the... the <laughs> Going back to this, right, it's, they're talking about the prophet that Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. And then Peter says, guys, Jesus is the prophet. And so to summarize, in just a few minutes, Peter goes down a biblical Old Testament checklist of Messiah criteria. Servant, check. Suffering servant, double check. Holy, check. Righteous, check. Prophet, check. And then the mic drop moment comes in verse 18. Peter says, guys, the big crowd, guys, Jesus is the Christ and he fulfills our entire Bible. But what God foretold by the mouth, Peter says, of all the prophets, that is everybody who wrote the Old Testament, that his Christ would suffer, Jesus thus fulfilled. Jesus meets all the biblical criteria. He fulfills all the messianic prophecies, every passage, every foretelling, every action, every attitude, every component, every qualifier in his character. Jesus is him. He's the guy. He's our guy. And then, and then this is Peter. He's just, it's like he's just blowing through this so fast. And all the Gentiles, all of us, we miss it all. Uh, and this is so brilliant. And Peter is just he's just he's just delivering it on a silver platter for his audience. He's helping them remember, see who Jesus is. Now, the next thing he does, let's keep going, is he he then answers another question. He says, what happens when Jesus saves us, this is ostensibly what he says, what happens when you trust in this Messiah? What are the results? And he gives a few things. First, in verse 19, he says, this is beautiful. Guys, this is so beautiful. He says, our sin is wiped away. Look at this. Look back at verse 19. He says it this way. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. This is a direct quotation from Isaiah 43.25 and Psalm 51.9. And there's a third one, actually, that is kind of a semi-quotation. So here's how this works. Picture a, a scroll uh, in the first century, a parchment, and this is what they wrote on. They didn't have paper like we have paper. They had animal skins that they wrote on. And the archaeologists tell us, in the first century at least, when they made the ink, the ink did not have an, an acidic content high enough to chemically bond with the surface of the parchment. And that meant that the ink just sort of sat on the surface and then dried. And you had to make sure that thing didn't get wet 
Because if it did, it would smear and it would be erased. And what Peter is saying is that our sin, the record, the written record of our sin is in Jesus is wiped away like a parchment can be wiped away. And you, it's a fresh start. It's a fresh start. This is, this is a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful thing, a powerful thing, to wipe away all of the dumb stuff that we have done and have a clean parchment. And Jesus has done this. He has, he has uh, his, his, his sacrifice has blotted our sin or wiped away our sin. There's no record of them any longer. So that's the first thing that happens when we're saved. The second thing Peter says, verse 20, is we're spiritually refreshed, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And this is, this is interesting. This, this means that it's like, it's, it was hot yesterday. Wasn't it hot yesterday? When Friday? How hot was it? Too hot. Really hot. Boy, you guys are super good in uh, being weather. You should be on TV. Uh, it's about as good. So, so I think it was like 103. At least in Melrose, it was like 103, 104. Uh, that was hot. It's hot. So what this is, is like when you've been outside in the heat and then you come into an air-conditioned room and you can feel like you can breathe again. And it's like, ah. Oh. It's like some people that... They just go to the movie theater. You don't care about the movie on a hot day. You just want to go in and just sit in the air for two and a half hours. And then you sneak into another movie. No, you don't. You don't do that. That's wrong. That's what this word means. They didn't have air conditioning then, but it's the sense of the breathing room that comes from the, the pressure, the spiritual pressure to perform. Jesus' performance is perfect. You don't need to be perfect. Oh, you can you can have some breathing space. You can breathe again spiritually. That's what that word means. Uh, and then in the uh, third third one there on your handout, uh, verse twenty one, Peter talks cosmic eschatology for a moment, and he says, "In the end, all things get restored." This is the promise that we have in Christ: that all bad things that are done get undone in the end, and all good things that were undone actually get done. In other words, everything gets put back to what it should have been, and yet even better. Everything that fell apart is put back again, but more perfect. Restitution is made. Restoration takes place. And so Peter is speaking eschatologically here. He's speaking about the end of time, human time. It all gets wrapped up. And, and, and cosmic eschatology was, again, wrapped up in messianic theology in the first century in Judaism. Jewish people spoke about this quite a bit. And so this is hitting some real points of contact with the audience. And then finally, he says that God blesses us. What happens when, when Jesus is Lord and, and he saves us and we trust in his name? He blesses us. And the sermon kind of ends with a simple and powerful promise that we're blessed by God through Christ. Jesus is a blessing. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is a blessing. I, I forget about the simplicity of this. Have you ever done this maybe as a believer? Sometimes the older saints do this. If you're new to Christ, maybe you haven't done this, but um, we, we think, man, what would my life have been like had I not met Christ when I did? 
And you kind of put on on a trajectory and you're just like, whoa, you know, that's like, that could be bad deal. And, and it really makes you think, I think, thoughts of thankfulness and your heart is grateful because you're blessed to be saved. I'm far, 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 far better off with Christ than I was without him. And that's because God sent Jesus to bless us. He is sent to bless each and every one of us. And so this sermon is interesting because Peter does call on them to believe in the name of the Lord and to repent from their sins. And we don't read it now, but a little bit later, we read that there's a huge response in this second sermon. There's 2,000 more people who say yes to Jesus at this sermon. So there must have been quite a few listening and then 2,000 more. So if you remember in Peter's first sermon, 3,000 people responded to faith in Christ and water baptism. And now in his second sermon, 2,000. Some of you are like me. Maybe, man, Peter's slipping a little bit here, right? Just kidding. It's a joke. Come on, laugh at that. That's funny. Uh, don't be so uptight. So, so what's cool about this is just, I don't know why Luke does this. Maybe it's his physician's background. He's like kind of telling us some numbers, like how big was this thing? And it was getting big quick. So you've got at least 2,000. It was 2,000 men. So that meant there was like way more than 2,000. And so the first church, the only church on planet Earth was a big church. It was a mega church. Thousands are responding to the message of the gospel. The priests don't know what to do. The Pharisees don't know what to do. The council doesn't know what to do. The Sadducees are like, what is going on here? The Roman leaders are like running around like, what is up with this? Like, what is happening? Why are these Christians and huh, and Jesus and Peter and this guy and this person and all these people getting healed? Everyone in a position of political and religious power right now is threatened and confused. By the way, a little bit later, it says that the priests offering sacrifice The priests were a big group of people and they rotated into the temple. They had like a duty schedule about who would perform the sacrifices and the other uh, uh, ritualistic duties. Well, it says that some of them were getting saved, which meant probably that their whole roster was jacked up because guys were tapping out like, yeah, I don't really need to, you know, bleed out another animal right now because I'm a Christian because the blood of Jesus and stuff. And so they're writing an email saying like, yeah, I can't really come into work this week. Right. And so this is like total mayhem. It's gospel powered mayhem in Jerusalem. And it's beautiful. This is beautiful. The gospel was so attractive to people back then. Jesus was everything that so many of these Jewish people, they had been looking diligently and waiting and praying. And so, and, so, and so their eyes, and they see the Lord, and they say yes to him. Here's what they needed. They needed their eyes to be opened by the Holy Spirit, and they needed someone who could communicate to them who Jesus is in a way that they could understand. And this is the same thing we need. We need these two things today. So I'm going to talk about today for a second. You know what we need today? Is we need the Holy Spirit to go before us and open up the eyes of those who are spiritually blinded. We do. Apart from Christ, apart from this work, we can do nothing. I can't talk someone in to becoming a Christian. You can't. You can have airtight arguments. You can't even perform enough miraculous healings for someone to become a Christian unless the work of the Holy Spirit is opening eyes unplugging ears spiritually and opening hearts. And then we also need 
gospel communicators who can tell people about Jesus in a way that they can understand. We just read a sermon that's highly specific. And if we had a group of 3,000 Rosebergians, is that a thing? Rosebergers? We would not... (laughs) We would not preach the same way. We would preach the same way, but not the same content. Because this was a very Jewish audience. And if if we read this, if I got up at like... Um, at the concert on Tuesday nights and just like read this, people would be like, what? What are you doing? No one understands this, right? And so we communicate in a way that people today, our audience can understand who Jesus is. We don't water it down. We don't change the scriptures. We just contextualize the message in a way uh, for our time and our culture. And this is what we need, gospel communicators who can do this. And don't just say, oh, Billy, we're good. We got you. No, I refuse. Okay? And here's why. It's because I'm not the only one. We're all called to do this. All of us are communicators of love and grace. Now, not all of us get up and you know do this, but we all can communicate in our own way by loving our neighbor, by serving those around us, by being kind, by lo- being loving, by serving, uh, by sharing our testimonies. And looking for those crucial conversations that God may bring about with your friend group. And we communicate, we share, we talk, we pray, we serve, we build houses in TJ. Some people are going to go down to TJ and you're going to bring a non-Christian friend and they're going to build a a house alongside of you and then they're going to get saved. They're going to come to Christ because they're in TJ. They can't go anywhere, right? Just kidding. (laughs) The experience will be so powerful for them. And they'll see the love of Jesus being performed in sweaty action, and that will draw them to the Lord. So we're all responsible for this. We all have a calling on on communicating the love of Jesus. By the way, the response a few weeks ago was just wonderful. You may recall I had issued an invitation to receive Christ at our services, as well as an invitation to become water baptized And we saw 37 people complete those response cards for those things in our services. And so we're attempting to follow up with all of those. If you filled out a card and and, uh, you're not returning our calls, we're we're praying for you, we're after you. No, uh, (laughs) that sounded creepy. Uh, I mean that in the non-creepy way, of course. But (laughs) in two weeks, we're going to meet at River Forks. Uh, That's the only place in town that will hold us all is the park. Uh, And so we're going to see, guys, 48 people baptized at the river in just about two weeks. And so that's pretty awesome, yeah? So our goal is in our church is to present every man, woman, and child with multiple and repeated opportunities to hear about Jesus and to respond to Jesus. And our dream is to see people accept the Lord and receive his grace and forgiveness and his rebirth and and get a restart and get their sins wiped away by the power of Christ and to become fearless disciples of Jesus, loving him and living for him. And this is our mission. This is our passion. This is what gets us up in the morning. This is what animates us. This is our coffee. This is our jet fuel spiritually. This is what we work towards. It's why we give. It's why we give our time, our money, and our talent. It's why we serve. It's why we read. It's why we study. It's why we pray and fast and seek God's face. And when we really immerse ourselves in a passage like this, I mean, it takes us back to our roots, right? It takes us back to like what it's all about. What are we doing here? What is this? What is our real focus here? And Luke 
and the gospel uh, writers and this passage, they just take us back to our origin story and it helps us to focus on what truly matters. It's easy to get kind of distracted and be like, oh, and then, you know, oh, I care about masks and I care about vaccines and I care about, you know, all these things and, 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 and okay, it's all important, but let's all just really stay focused as a church and continue to do our part, our little part of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. What do you think about that? All right, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this very Jewish interaction that in some ways feels a little bit foreign to us, but when we really break it down and study it, we see that there's just some, some amazing common things for us, like who is Jesus? And what does it mean to be saved? And what questions do people have that we might be able to answer? And so, Lord, I'm praying that you would help us as a church family to become a community where gospel communicators are just everywhere. And we're doing our part in communicating the love of Christ, serving, loving, sharing, testifying when necessary, when, when, when there's an open door. And Lord, help us to to see our dream realized, which is to see every man, woman, and child have repeated opportunities to, to hear about Jesus and to respond. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much. I ask you to bless every person here. And the blessing is specific, that we would be blessed because of Jesus. <laughs> and Lord, we love you and we thank you for these things. And we all said, amen. Amen.